Don't wait for the institution where you're at or you work for to provide a pathway for you to go do the things that you're passionate about. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Puneeth. I have my co-host David with me. How's it going, David? Anything new in your world? Pretty good. Well, I was recently talking to a coworker about the new Ant-Man movie, Quantumania, and I heard that it's terrible. Oh, it has been released? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think uh, it's not doing so well in the box office either, but oh, uh, she was telling me that it wasn't very scientific, which I guess kind of leads us into today's topic with Dr. Sabine from the University of Colorado, where he's going to talk to us about basically material science's role in pop culture. So what were your favorite parts about what he talked about today? Yeah, just to be more specific, the Colorado School of Mines is, is where he's a professor at. But I just thought it was a fascinating conversation all around. We basically talked about how materials science influences pop culture, you know, movies. We see vibranium in Marvel movies. And I particularly found his conversation about the density of Thor's hammer, like quite engaging and interesting story. He had a disagreement with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who we all know. And so it's just really interesting to hear more about that conversation, how it was very polite um, and it was like proof-based, even though this is a fictional realm, right? So that was kind of my favorite part of the episode. What about you? Yeah, I think that the disagreement with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was just funny. And we got a good conversation afterwards about how some writers take great liberties when they write and some writers do their research and just talking about like he's a professor arguing with Neil deGrasse Tyson on a fictional piece of work and just the effect that it has on getting people interested in science by meeting it meeting them where they are and so he talks a lot about how we can engage with a broader audience for technical things that uh, can be made to where they are then slowly introduce them to more and more technical things uh, so I thought that was really interesting. And then, of course, we also talked about the Beskar armor in The Mandalorian. And so that's going to release uh, soon or has recently released. And so I know that Star Wars was one of my favorite shows or like series growing up. And I, I really enjoyed the world that they built there. And so seeing how uh, Beskar is actually very close to Damascus Steel, like at least historically, was very cool and something that I didn't put together. And so I really like the ties that it has to the cultural and scientific progress and the effect that cutting edge technology often looks like science or science fiction or sorry, magic or science fiction to us when we don't understand how it's done when it's at the very cutting edge. Yeah. And how it relates to kind of the history of people to right, like the Bronze Age, the Stone Age, Iron Age, etc. We are, as a human species, inherently tied to materials and the advancement of it. And we kind of see that in pop culture as well. And we have that conversation through the episode and we wanted to provide value as well. And Suveen discusses how he uses pop culture to make his lectures, his talks, his presentations more engaging. That's ultimately the goal when you have these talks is for people to retain what you say. And so to be able to use pop culture, which he is very passionate about, he gives some tips on that, but you don't necessarily have to be this 
you know, movie nerd or whatever, just focus more on what you're interested in and find ways where you can connect your passions to your scientific talks. So we really discuss a lot in this episode. Is there anything you want to add before we get right into it? No, I think that it's very engaging. And we talk a lot about science fiction, movies and comics. So uh, a lot of things to look out for. So right before we get into it, if you do enjoy the episode, please leave a rating and review on your preferred podcast platform. That would mean the world to us. It helps push our podcast out to more people and and get more people part of our MSE community. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. For today's episode, I'm honored to introduce Dr. Suveen Mathadu, an expert metallurgist with nearly 20 years of metals processing experience. After receiving his PhD in mechanical engineering from Texas A&M in 2006, Suveen has held roles as a materials engineer for the Department of Defense and as a materials manager in the U.S. Army Research Office. He also was a professor at UC Riverside for seven years. And currently, he is a metallurgical and materials engineering professor at the Colorado School of Mines and chief scientist at Pacific Northwest National Lab. Dr. Mathadu also has a history of using pop culture as a mode of teaching students about STEM, which we'll get into today, and I'm super excited about it. So thank you so much for joining us today, Suvi. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. In what we always do in the Zoom world, I'm turning off my outlet so you guys don't have to hear the pinging. Sorry about that. I'm I'm really happy to be here and join you guys. I've heard great things about this podcast and watched a few myself, and it's an honor to be here. We're honored to have you. (laughs) Well, yeah, let's jump right into it. By the time this episode airs, the third season of The Mandalorian will officially release, so we think it's a great time to use and look into metallurgy in the show. An important material is Beskar, which is the material used as the armor for the Mandalorian himself, which is super strong and lightweight metal. But there's more to that than that. Could you describe the other ties that Beskar has to historic real-life materials? Yeah, so from the first episode, I'll put one of my little bobbleheads on the desk. From the first episode, where Mando walks into a bar, a trawler sees his his armor and asks him like is that real beskar steel which kind of sets the tone for the rest of the show like is that something that is rare and valued and then later on in the show they introduce like that the fact that it's rare and valued when they have these kind of ingots and if you look on the ingots they have this water-like pattern on them that is what people traditionally think of as a famous material called damascus steel kind of a legendary steel that was made supposedly in Syria, but the roots of the primary material were in India. That's where the trade routes went to get the original steel. And the swords and the knives that were made out of Damascus steel are of legend. They were so much better than what existed at the time because of the rarity of the materials and also the skill of the tradesperson. And this this kind of carried over into the Mandalorian and the show, the idea that there is this rare, valuable material that can only be crafted by a few people that has extreme properties for, at the time, what would be considered extreme environments. So I was geeked out when I saw that because they have examples of rare and important metals in lots of pop culture. And some of this just stems from the roots of material science. Like we went from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, And those ages were defined by being able to make better 
and sharper swords and shields with the metals advancements occurred over time. So metallurgy and making better metal materials like are shown in the Mandalorian, it's it's kind of in the fundamental DNA of humanity. It's how we've advanced as, as civilizations. So then what I'm curious about is like the processing of Beskar, right? Like with the armor, right? Like, can you just dive into to that a little bit in terms of like the similarities between Damascus steel and Beskar? I know you talked about how it's kind of like one of few, right? Instead of one of many that can really create this type of material. What about it, like in the Mandalorian was so exciting to you and, you know, just like jaw dropping, you know, that that made you really excited the second you started watching it. Sure. So the material science and engineering as a field is tied to this idea that of processing structure, property, performance relationships called the material tetrahedron. How you process something affects the microstructure, that microstructure affects how the property sets work, and that affects how it behaves in the environment that we're trying to set it up for. And clearly in, in The Mandalorian, this is a hard material to process to get the right structure, to have the extreme set of properties that are portrayed. So properties and performance like blaster and lightsaber resistance, like acid resistance to a, a crate dragon or the, the sarlacc pit digestive fluids, or the ability to stop fire in high temperatures. All of these are kind of extreme properties that tie back to that tetrahedron, how it's processed and how it's made. So a question always comes up when you have indestructible materials, how do you turn them into what you need to turn them into? And I thought it was really cool that the armor showed indications of using things that we would use to process materials that are difficult to process. Like if you were to take the highest melting point material on the periodic table, tungsten, 3,400 degrees C, you can't really take that and put it in a conventional furnace and melt it down and turn it into a product. But we can do things called induction heating, where you apply currents that allow the material to get charged up and to absorb energy, and then we can shape it and turn it into the things that we want. So you see the armor doing this. She turns that spear into like a little chainmail for, for Grogu, Baby Yoda, and you see her making armor pieces for the Mandalorian using these special processing skills that, that are hard to acquire. And in their case, they're secret. They would rather die than reveal the secrets. So when we think about Beskar, I think a lot of people think that it would like almost completely fake, like it's a science fiction term, but it seems like it's very rooted in what we use today. Why do you think that, uh, how do you think we can expand the knowledge of other people or have it be more common knowledge that these are common techniques that are already employed today, just to change slightly to this science fiction world? Sure. The properties that are depicted are often done in a way that's not rooted in real science and more rooted in magic. But if you think back to Damascus steels, it was probably similar at the time. Even though we have better steels now, Damascus steels and their performance, their sharpness, their hardness, their toughness, their edge retention probably appeared to be magic to everyone else that was using low carbon steels at the time that couldn't get it. So the boundaries of what, what appears to be like unreasonable science fiction and what is actually possible with real science depend on the time and place we are in, in our histories. So let's let's take some sort of unrealistic properties that we would expect from Beskar. So lightsaber resistance or blaster resistance. So this is this is often ascribed to being a high temperature material. 
or have uh, something that you would use like in a jet turbine engine blade for aircraft that has to support high temperatures, extreme environments. But lightsabers have been shown to cut through steel doors. They've been shown through cut through many other things, indicating that it's not likely a temperature thing. And they're not exactly lasers. They're actually plasma. So in the Star Wars lore, they're, they're plasmas. And we as scientists have been able to confine temperature fields of plasmas up to 150 million degrees C, like 10 times the temperature of the sun using a magnetic field. So it's plausible that you could make a material that carried a high magnetic field high enough that it would actually keep a lightsaber or a blaster from physically making contact with the Beskar. And I think there's one scene where Mando is is practicing fighting with a dark saber versus the armor where you start seeing the blade heating up and turning orange, meaning it's not impervious, but a magnetic field, a high magnetic field would certainly trap something like that. Now, if you ask like what our most modern material is that we can develop, we're still developing modern steels for a variety of applications and other alloys. You look at like what Apple, Tesla, Blue Origin, other major companies are doing, they're at the forefront of using better ways of making and processing materials to get to extreme properties for space, for high temperatures, for hypersonics, for irradiation environments, and other places that we seem to think are extreme. I don't know if that answers your question or not, David. <laughs> like That was a very roundabout answer. But what I'd say is that materials designed for things that we perceive to be impossible is a constant iteration of humanity trying to make things better and better and better for the environments that we are exploring. I really like how basically when you're at the forefront of technology, sometimes it can look like magic more than science when you are able to accomplish something that no one thought was possible. So I think that just kind of feeds into our imagination when it comes to science fiction and lets it run further than what we think we can do at the current moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess given that, right, in our current situation, you mentioned kind of the resistance to lightsabers, right, the plasma. I was just wondering from purely the material science perspective, was there anything else that you've seen with Beskar that seems like too magical given this point in time? Yeah, one of one of the things that they've done, Marvel has done with vibranium, and you, you see it in many other tropes in science fiction and in stories, is the idea that a pure material performs better than a material with impurities or with other elements in it. And so they in, in the Mandalorian, they always make this big deal about how pure Beskar is more valuable than any other Beskar. And the reality is, is that over time, humans have been able to develop better alloys and better processing to target real world applications. You rarely want to use a material in the actual pure state. That being said, there's there's always research at taking pure materials and being able to make them much stronger. So by reducing the crystal size that makes up the material, you can increase the strength by an order of magnitude. There's been recent work on titanium that forges things at cryogenic temperatures that allows them to extremely increase their strength through tiny planes that get introduced into the pure materials. So we can make those materials stronger. We can get them to a point better than they are in the original state that they're cast in but they're still not going to compete with alloys and better processing where we control the defects, we control the elements, and we can therefore design a material for much more extreme applications. 
Well, on the topic of other Marvel movies, this may be a slightly off topic, but you once had a disagreement with a rather famous astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, about Thor's hammer. Could you describe what the disagreement was about and how it was finally resolved? Yeah, that was, I mean, it's coming up on like <laughs> 10 years since that disagreement. And it still, if you look on YouTube, you can find him using it in his like a scientist go to the movies lecture that he charges <laughs> people 80 bucks to go to. And uh, let me just say this. I appreciate what Neil deGrasse Tyson does for science outreach and for getting people excited about science. But I also think that people become experts in a very narrow field. And he perhaps didn't become an expert in the narrow field of comic book history when he tweeted out that if Thor's hammer is made out of neutron star matter, that it would weigh as much as 300 billion elephants. So neutron star matter is, you know, like a trillion tons in something that's a square centimeter, the size of my pinky. So it just is indicating that the density is extremely high. So in the comic book lore, it was never a matter of it being made out of neutron matter. It said it was made out of a material called Uru, another fictional material like Beskar or Vibranium, and that it was forged in the core of a dying planet, basically under extreme pressures, like it had to be forged under extreme pressures. And so I disagreed with him and with a colleague of mine, a science outreach writer, we wrote an article that showed that he was wrong. And it was really not very scientific. It was a a Marvel trading card that I had when I was a kid in high school that had the volume measurement. I mean, it had the dimensions and it had the weight. And if you know the dimensions and you know the weight and you assume that it's just a rectangle, the density worked out to be something like 2.1 grams per centimeter, which is lighter than aluminum. Like it's not a density thing. And so he ended up admitting that he was wrong, which, you know, is a big deal for a guy who helped get rid of Pluto. <laughs> as a planet <laughs> i agree it's not a planet but you know it just pluto hasn't even made one trip around the sun <laughs> since we've discovered it like it's not, <laughs> it's not a real planet but anyway he was wrong he admitted it I, I was lucky enough to go on star talk for an episode and chat about it a little bit but you know then the discussion turned into well how does it work and another physicist from University of Minnesota came in and had his narrative written into a Hulk comic that said that it changes its emissions of graviton. So it basically can change its density on the fly. But then his explanation for that was nanotechnology. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, game over. Like, you can't say everything that happens <laughs> in science is due to nanotechnology. So yeah, it was a, it was a fun it was a fun discussion. And it's led to many other scientific debates and discussions. And of course, there's a lot of people who say, like, who cares? It's a magical hammer. You have a world where there's, like, talking raccoons. And why Why do you even care? And why do we care? Because it gets people talking about things that they normally don't find to be interesting. So it was, it was fun. It is a fun conversation. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, what do you think that the comic book creators think when they probably made something up on the fly <laughs> and then people years later spend hours debating about it in real science that they probably weren't even thinking about? You know, some people, some creators take the time to do the research and figure things out. Some make up things on the fly and they find it amusing or, or, or they don't care. Clearly, if you've watched like most like scenes of someone forging a sword or a hammer in the movies, they don't care about the realism of, of, of the process. 
But I had uh, two interesting conversations in, in my time with some of the best creators. So one is a guy named Chris Claremont. He wrote like all the foundational X-Men comics. He wrote like Days of Future Past. And Days of Future Past has a bunch of material science examples, including like ductile to brittle transition of the steel, including turning the sentinels into slag. And I asked him once, like, back then when you didn't have access to the internet, how did you do all these things? Like, what did you do? He's like, well, we had things like National Geographic. And I used to read articles and like National Geographic and Time Magazine and get ideas. And because this was kind of like the post-war era where lots of new metals and materials had been developed for the war and the space and radiation, these were showing up in the magazines and news articles that people were reading. So he extracted those. For Stan Lee, Stan Lee said that he made the X-Men because he got tired of making accurate scientific stories to talk about the origin of his creation. So you had like radioactive spiders and and Captain America, Super Soldier Serum and all these. And he said he got tired of thinking of creative scientific origins for his superheroes and he just made them all mutants. So I think they have fun with it. I think they have fun with it. There's one guy who passed recently, Neil Adams, who was just a pioneer and a legend in the comic book world. And he would write comic books about a hollow earth where the earth is expanding and there's an internal earth where like other dinosaurs and things exist in real life. But he actually believed it. He honestly, genuinely believed it. So yeah, the the, the reactions are based on the writers just depend on who you're talking to. But they all realize that they're telling stories that they want to engage people with, whether it's real or not. We have talked about it offline of just kind of using nanotechnology as this, you know, solution, right, for developing next generation technologies. But that, as we discussed in our first episode in the podcast, there's so much that goes into this realm of nanotechnology um, that, you know, just saying it's nanotech is is not really enough, at least for a material scientist like myself. But why do you think that these ideas of like invincible or magical materials are so common in in all of these films, not just Marvel films, but Mandalorian, etc.? Sure. I'm, but what I want to take a step back beneath and make one more comment, like some of you or some of the listeners may have heard of the National Academies of Science, the National Academies of Engineering, National Institute of Medicine. These are not government entities, but they're advisory groups that are put together by the government to advise people in you know future areas of science, education, medicine, engineering that are important for our society. They spun off something called the National Academy of Science, Science and Entertainment Exchange. It's in LA and their whole job is to provide services to anybody in the entertainment industry, a high schooler making a play, somebody writing a poem, it doesn't matter, on using accurate depictions of science, medicine, or engineering in their movies. So James Cameron has used them kind of extensively for the Avatar movies. There's other movies, Marvel movies, where they have brought in consultants to consult on like realism and science. So there are creators that that do care about the accuracy of the depictions, even though many don't. And there are places like the, the Science and Entertainment Exchange, which kind of allow that to happen. So I think as society becomes more science savvy, those kind of stories become more resonant and that kind of service will become more popular. Okay, so now to go back to your other question uh, about why stories have these magical metals and materials. So 
if you watched Game of Thrones, you saw things like Dragonglass or Valerian Steel. And I swear, like that last season, nobody even <laughs> wants to talk about it anymore. So we'll just end it, right? Or Lord of the Rings, like the Mithril material that was used in there. Or Vibranium or Thor's Mjolnir hammer made out of Uru. All of these like stories and legends go back to the idea of making a metal or material that has strong or invincible powers. And I do think that this goes back to like the roots of humanity. Like if you were fighting someone with a cast bronze sword and another person came in with like a shiny silverish looking thing and cut it in half, you would think that it was kind of <laughs> magic or, you know, you would run away. Everybody would probably just run away. Or if one of those swords interacted with a wood shield or a bronze shield. And because these materials were developed all around the world at around the same time, every kind of culture has legends about them. So many of the legends that we get told and, and the classes that we get taught, we don't hear the full story because it all comes through the view of the people who have written the stories. So the Bessemer process was invented in the UK. Uh, that was like what pioneered the Industrial Revolution and our ability to make steel on bulk like for buildings, for train tracks, for everything. But in Tanzania, 1,800 years ago, they were taking materials and clays from the edge of Lake Victoria, and they were able to make high-carbon steels that were much better than anything that was developed up until the Bessemer process. These Tanzanian, they were called the Haya tribe. It was only when British traders came in and brought like substandard products that displaced this artisanal thing that they had been making for centuries because it was cheap and easily accessible. But even in this Haya tribe, they had, these materials were of very, very high value because of their performance and properties. And so I think it's in people's DNA to like think about swords and shields. I mean, any nerdy kid who's like gone into a swap meet and like bought a cheap knife, you just feel something different when you're holding that knife. Like... It connects to our primal roots. And so I think that's why we see it a lot in, in pop culture across the spectrum. We see these examples of these magical materials. Even in the, the most recent movie with The Rock, what was that movie? I forgot it already. Uh, Black Adam. Yeah, Black Adam. Black Adam, they had what that metal that they were mining for, right? Like, uh, I've already <laughs> forgot the name of it because it was kind of boring, but like everything hinges on this this resource of something that you can make something cool with. So I like that idea because as a material scientist, I always want to make something better. All of us want to make something better that betters humanity. But it's always cool to think that that people watch TV shows and movies and listen to songs like David Guetta and Sia singing Titanium, and they don't really realize that <laughs> that's material science too. So I guess what, one question I have is. What do you think your favorite like uh, fictional material is, and then which is like your least favorite or the one you find most ridiculous out of like uh, the most common ones we see in media? Uh, I mean, the at, the at the top of the list is vibranium, like for for Wakanda. The fact that this critical resource has been used like influence transportation, defense, healthcare, telecommunications, building vehicles everything like to me that represents like what the power of material science can be and when people ask me like what's the closest material we have to that i still say steel 
like where you have steel implants, you have steel cars, you have steel buildings, you know, it's to me, it's just like a more advanced version of, of steel. But I also like the fact that it's it was developed at a time where there were stereotypical portrayals of Africans and blacks in pop culture. And that certainly wasn't, you know, you had a powerful king who knew how to, he was a scientist himself, him and his sister, obviously, and they were able to kind of harness the power of this vibranium ore. So that's, that's my favorite, least favorite. Tough question. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think, I, I generally don't, don't think of kind of my least favorite depictions. I honestly thought that for the first Avatar movie, that when they were like going in looking for this material, <laughs> literally called unobtainium, <laughs> the name is is kind of dumb in the first place. But then they didn't really even say why they were doing it or what the material would do. Just that they were like traveling to a far off moon to be able to get it. So I don't know if that's my least. That's my least favorite. But <sighs> okay, I'll I'll do another. I'll, yeah, two more if we have the time. All right. One of my most favorites is not a fake material. It's a real material. But in the most recent Jurassic Park movies, they had these big spheres made out of what they called halon, aluminum oxynitride, which is the toughest armor, transparent armor ceramic known. And when I started my career in the army, like you mentioned at the beginning, my colleague Jim McCauley, he was the inventor of that material. Like, and he doesn't watch those movies. He was like, hella confused when I show these big spheres with that scene with Jimmy Fallon trying to shoot it with a gun. And of course it breaks when the dinosaur bites it, but that's a real material like aluminum oxynitride. And on the other side of the coin is the Star Trek example that people bring up all the time of Scotty going back in time and giving scientists the formula for transparent aluminum. So aluminum with a little bit of oxygen and nitrogen can become an oxygen can become a transparent ceramic armor like in Jurassic Park, but it's no longer a metal. We can't make transparent aluminum. Like the physics of light interaction with a metal, this means we're never going to be able to make it transparent. So I was very disappointed in the Star Trek world, and people still bring that up. When are we going to have transparent <laughs> aluminum? Never. Like, not by the laws of physics, the answer is no, unless it's very, 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 very thin. So as material scientists, this is something that, you know, we can discuss extensively, but for the general public, do you think it resonates more with them when these materials are like realistic or quasi-realistic, you know, versus something that is just purely magical or otherworldly? Oh yeah, for sure. But, but, you know, that's just beneath that's just the way that the human brain works. So if it connects to something, what I'd say is that when somebody watches a show or a movie that show has one chance to establish the physics of their world that might be similar to our world, but not exactly connected to our world. And once they ruin their own physics, that's when people start going crazy. So if I ask you guys, what are what are Spider-Man's powers? Yeah, uh, you could probably tell me, right? Like super strength can shoot spider webs, can swing from building to building. I guess in some instances, it's more mechanical, like the gadgets but in other instances it's like their natural power all right so what if you went to the next like marvel movie and in the middle of a scene spider-man <laughs> just jumped up and started to fly i'd be like what the heck is going on <laughs> <laughs> exactly right i'd be like what, what this is this can't be real now you're ignoring the fact that he can like lift up cars shoots web out of his glands like 
bitten by a radioactive spider spider sense like they've established the physics of their world and they've deviated from those physics and so when it comes to the depictions of how a metal works like when you see captain america's shield versus thanos's blade all of that lines up with the physics that have been established kind of in the marvel universe and it ties with our ideas of how those metals should behave the sounds the sparks this and that. But when they deviate from those physics, that's when people start disconnecting and saying, eh, this is a bunch of crap. But all of us have those friends that walk into a movie and being engineers, <laughs> they're like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This yeah. is wrong. And you just want to tell them, like, go away. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> We've been focused a lot about other people and bringing more people into the scientific narrative. So you mentioned in a previous call that you do a workshop that's centered around making talks and lectures more culturally relevant to ensure audience engagement and retention. Could you explain what are some specific strategies you do to utilize and the results you see from them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that as science and as people who teach science to the world, whether we professors or in industry or doing what you guys are doing, Oftentimes, the focus is purely on kind of the science and engineering without meeting broader audiences where they are with things that are relevant to them. And pop culture lets you do that. I I, I mean, I grew up reading superhero comics, but they're great because you can go anywhere in the world and they know who like Superman, the Man of Steel is. They know who Batman is. You can go to somebody who's literally 80 years old are older and ask them like, what comics did you read as a kid? Or you could go to my six-year-old daughter and she'll tell you about these. So they cross genders, they cross cultures, they cross age groups, and they allow a point of accessibility that you can't normally get. But in the classroom and, and dealing with the public, sometimes you have to engage the audience where they are. Like, And it's hard for me to do because Let's take, for example, anime, like this generation of kids that's out there, they love anime and I don't know anything about it. Like I can give them Star Trek examples. I can't give them anime examples. So I think one of the best tools for connecting with broader audiences is to take the things that you're passionate about, taking the things that you enjoy or that you're interested in and connecting those with the scientific or STEM topics you want to convey. So I also like old school hip hop. And I use that in my material science classes when I talk about diamonds or rims or Eminem working in a steel plant for a car factory at eight mile. Like these connect with the audience in a way that I'm passionate about and that energy conveys, even if they're not interested. So outside of this podcast and your job, what are you guys interested in? What do you do? Sports. I love football, baseball, basketball, et cetera. Sports. It's so easy to connect sports, like to material science, like the three industries that advance from modern materials advancements before anything else does are defense, biomedical and sports, because you can make a new product or a material and sell it for an outrageous price for a golf club or a ski or a tennis racket because of what people will pay for it. But those are full of material science examples that would better connect than just talking about actual real science and what about you david like what do you do i like hiking and also just it's and cooking so so hiking maybe i can't connect you there but cooking cooking is an obvious connection right but with material science so when i talk about the tetrahedron the processing structure property performance if i'm talking to kids the example i'll give is take oil salt and potatoes 
and tell me all the things that you can make with that by varying like the time and the temperature that you process it. And they like come with everything, chips, tater tots, French fries, mashed potatoes. All of those are indicators of the tetrahedron. If you're talking to adults, then you can say like take barley, hops, water, and some like yeast. You know, how many different things can you make with them? Or or grapes in a barrel and some ferment and go make some wine, right? That's all the tetrahedron. So I think it just takes some brain plasticity to connect the things that you're interested in, passionate about with the science or the engineering that you're trying to convey. And it definitely gets people more engaged and more excited because it's culturally connected and relevant to them. And that's the initiator. That's the part where you really engage the audience is by making it seem like something that's important to them in their world. And one thing that I wanted you to emphasize, because we talked about this offline, is that you're not dumbing it down, right? You're just talking about it in a different way that leads to more engagement retention, which is ultimately the point, right, of of each of your talks and lectures. Exactly, right? Like, it's not about, like, dumbing down the content or teaching them less. It's just framing it in a different way that gets brilliant people excited about the possibilities that they may not have realized before. I mean, many people take for granted, especially when you're working with places that are socioeconomically disadvantaged or with groups that have been marginalized by society, that if they don't have that representation or don't have that connection, it's a hard bridge to carry over. But if you have a, if you have one of those kind of kids or young people that can get interested and are excited in it because of something that's connected to them. That may be the only introduction that they have to that science, and you never know what they'll turn out doing in life because of that. So it's not a linear connection, but I think it's really, really important to access communities that may not have parents or uncles or friends or aunts that are in STEM. And that just ties into the next question regarding, you know, the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We talked about the armorer. She's a a female scientific leader, really amazing blacksmith and champion of her people. And then, you know, you talked about Shuri from Black Panther as well. Very tech savvy, brilliant. It kind of goes against the traditional sort of, you know, high fantasy mindset. But I wanted to ask you what sort of impact do you think the armor character or Shuri will have in both media and STEM itself? Well, people want to see themselves as a hero of a story. They they want to look at things and feel like they are a part of it. And that's an important part of like conveying science. And I think pop culture has been well ahead of science in its portrayal of diversity and inclusion. Even going to like back to Uhura and Star Trek on a spaceship or the X-Men, you know, having that group of diverse characters. So pop culture is always a bit of a step ahead, but what it allows is it allows people that may not have access to scientists to see somebody that they could see themselves in. And so characters like Shuri or Riri Williams, you know, an MIT metallurgy student who apparently made like a vibranium detecting barge, you know, in her metallurgy class in the movie. These characters allow people to see themselves, and it's much more easy for them to imagine themselves in those roles, even if they're imaginary. But we as a scientific community obviously have to do a better job of putting examples and allowing people that have gotten into important positions to kind of shine and also be examples to the community around us. 
So I love the armor, right? She was, you don't think about a blacksmith and kind of an artisan blacksmith as ever being a woman. And I love the fact that they introduced her as a, a kind of a badass character in the show. If you're allowed to say that, censor me if you need to. <laughs> you're good. You're good. <laughs> You've really covered a range of topics, especially how we as scientists can effectively communicate with a more general audience to get them more interested in what we do. So we just wanted to ask you, do you have any quick tips or advice for students who want to improve their ability to use pop culture to disseminate or teach material science to diverse crowds? Yeah, don't wait for the institution where you're at or who you work for to provide a pathway for you to go do the things that you're passionate about. Go talk to a local high school teacher. Go engage with a local like boys or girls club. Go ask if you can volunteer to underserved communities and, and work with people. And so that's one is, is go do it yourself. Don't wait for a structure to be able to set it up for you, because unfortunately, society isn't built like that unless it needs to check a box. So go do what you're passionate about. The second thing I would say is there's a tendency to do things like science fairs where it's all kind of fun and games where there's, you know, making balloons and airplanes and things like that. But what you have to realize is that those activities are kind of ephemeral. And they're easy. Like you go for a day, you have fun. And then if you ever have to do real science or engineering, you guys know it's hard. It's it's a hard struggle. And there's lots of people that get discouraged along the way. And so what I would say is, is when you find good people that come from underserved or communities that have been marginalized by society, don't let it end with something as simple as that science fair. Get their information and provide continued mentorship at every level. So let have a, you know, once a month or once every two months check in and say, how are things going? You know, how are your classes doing? Yeah, math is hard, but this is why you need it to solve this problem. You know, let me show you an example of using math, which math teachers never do. And that continued level of mentoring and engagement provides more of a long-term pathway for people to go into STEM disciplines than just the science fairs, which are there and gone. But it doesn't help a student when they're struggling with doing their homework or when they have classmates that are telling them, like, why are you doing that? You should be doing this instead. So those are those are two tips that I would give for interacting with broader communities. I love that. Yeah, that why is so important. And sometimes it's easy to for, forget that why, right? And so that continuous mentorship is definitely pivotal there. And to be able to really know the person so you can understand their motivations, their background and what they're interested in, then it helps when you can kind of remind them of the why. So really, really enjoyed those two pieces of advice as well as just conversation as a whole is super fascinating. And again, thank you so much, Suveen, for joining us today. This was a blast. Thank you, guys. And yeah, good luck with the rest of the podcast. And, and as you continue to inspire those around you with this these interesting discussions. Thank you. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship 
from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there. Thank you.